Okay, so we have been through uh, all sorts of advice from the Apostle Paul on the saints in that day and age, on how they should live and relate one to another. Um, some, perhaps most, perhaps all, it's up to you, of the advice has a place in our day. Depends on you and where you're at. This brings us to the last bit of advice that he's going to wrap the epistle up. We mentioned last week that this is the penultimate, which means the second before the last bit of advice. And we begin at verse 10, and we're just going to read three verses. Finally, finally, he says, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. All right, so you open up your Bible today and you read that, and man, you've got a big meal on your plate. You know, wow. And especially when you go on to read, because he's going to tell you what to put on as a means to the armor to protect yourself against the wiles of the devil and the spiritual darkness in high places and the rulers and powers and principalities. And so uh, we have all that laid before us. Go back to verse 10. Finally, after telling everything about um, submitting, uh, uh, submitting to each other first, wives submitting to husbands, husbands loving wives, children obeying parents, slaves submitting to masters, masters treating their slaves well. He says, finally... And having instructed them on how to react, he now speaks to them as individuals, as a collective group. Uh, And he tells them how to be straight and strong in the Lord and in the power of the Lord's might. The implication is not to stand in the power of your might, meaning your flesh and what you're good at and what you're strong in relative to spiritual things. We're not talking about how to make a living and anything. We're talking about spiritual matters here. Stand strong in the Lord, be strong in him and his power, that in order to be successful in the things that he said to them about submitting and obeying and all, loving and all those things, finally, he says, but he tells us another reason why to submit to the power of the Lord and let him reign. Um, uh, this final bit of advice closes the epistle. And so he's therefore exhorting everyone who reads it to be strong. And that is how it begins. Be strong in the Lord. And he will articulate to them how to actually do this by appealing to spiritually driven things that he will describe as physical armor. I'm going to say that again. He's going to appeal to spiritually driven things that he is going to assign as physical armor. That's, and, and make sure you get that down because it's important to understand it that way. So this first directive, strong in the Lord, be courageous in his cause and rely on his strength, which is discovered by trusting his power, not your own. Trust in his power. And doing so, they would tap into his power and might. And then he adds, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. If you put on some armor, of course, the analogy is if you put on everything but the breastplate, you're going to get stabbed in the heart. If you put on everything but the whatever, 
and you're missing something. So he says, put on the whole armor of God. Of course, Paul uh, was, uh, has resorted to the weapons of actual soldiers uh, to describe the way these believers were to arm themselves with spiritual weapons of warfare. I can't emphasize it enough. With spiritual weapons of warfare. The whole armor of God speaks to every piece so that no Christian is left exposed in their offense or defense of themselves in the faith. Put on every piece. And if they do that, then the idea is this will help them not fall in battle. We know that they, we, I think we still say this, that in a war we say this many have fallen. This many have fallen. So we're going to see that Paul speaks to that falling and standing, standing and falling. And he appeals to that imagery of if you go out on the battlefield and you fall, that's not a good thing. That means you've been injured or killed, right? So we, and usually it means killed in our day and age. This many have fallen. So, um, of course, the meaning of the whole armor of God does not mean that God wears such armor. I just have to make that clear. This is an armor that God wears It's the armor of God, but these armaments are what God has provided us humans in this world, actually in that world, and perhaps in this world, to wear to protect ourselves on the defense and in the offense. So we note that the armor uh, is of God, who is spirit. So I'm just making these arguments. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So if we're putting on the armor of God, we're putting on the things of the Spirit. And that will be proven when we cover those items next week. And I'm going to mention them in just a second. So, and we note to put on all of it. And then we see Paul's reasoning for suggesting that, that the believers do that or that we do it. He says, so that you might be able to stand. There's that first mention of standing on the battlefield versus becoming a fallen one. That you may be able to stand, and that means not fall. In that day, and perhaps even in ours, the foes of the faith were so numerous and well-equipped that unless the Christians then were fully clothed with the things Paul is going to mention to them and equipped with divine armor, and that's that's the important part, uh, victory would probably be impossible for them. And I'll, I'll say that again, victory for a Christian if they didn't, arm themselves in that day, victory meaning remaining standing for a Christian in that day would be virtually impossible. This idea is repeated throughout the New Testament and uh, and there was a war for souls like no other during that time and the overall bride and the saints without the diligence of the apostles and the spirit and the the armament that they wore, they would fall. Jesus goes so far to say uh, that if the time that they were in was not cut short, nobody would remain standing on that battlefield. That's what he says. If the time was not cut short, the very elect would fall. So Paul is writing these letters to them and he's saying, arm yourselves with every bit of armor because even the very elect will fall on this battlefield. Now, it opens us up to the notion uh, uh, that once saved, always saved, that, that notion that Calvinism teaches, um, but the New Testament does not support that. And we can see it right here. He's talking to believers. He's saying, you know, get so you can stand. 
but the opposite being lest you fall. So falling to me, which means death, usually, that says you're a Christian, and if you fall, that means you've lost your faith. You've lost the salvation. Um, there's a reason for that, that it's all through the, the Scripture. And, so, and that's why these letters were written to the saints then. So then he says, put on the whole armor of God that, that you may be able to stand. That's why I want you to put on the whole armor. I want you to be out there to stand in that battlefield. I hate it when people fall. I, I'm adding that. Um, against stand how? Just to look glorious on the battlefield? No. That you may stand against the wiles of the devil. Okay, that is direct, directly here in Scripture. That you dress in the full armor of God so you can stand as a Christian against the wiles of the devil. All right. The word translated wiles is meodea, and it means something that's traced out. Uh, it's like a pattern, something that is a method is really a better way of saying it. So therefore, he's speaking of standing against the method, strategies, patterns, tricks of the devil. That's the better way to put it. Um, the word only occurs twice in the New Testament, and both uh, uh, are in Ephesians. So to me, it's easier to face a full-on attack that you know is happening, right? It's easier to know who your enemy is and to confront them or battle them, whatever, right? We're talking about battling people or a person that's hiding in a forest, you know, and is up in the trees or is behind them or in rocks or under the ground, this is the word that, that Maodea describes, that this, the, the devil, the actual Ha-Satan is mentioned there. He uses strategies that are not just facing somebody head on. They are strategies and methods and patterns that are difficult. And therefore, you have to be, have the full armor of God to protect yourself from attacks from any side. And here is the idea that Satan doesn't like to engage in one-on-one -on -one warfare. And, and I think that's kind of implied. It's my opinion. His tactics, and I'm going to emphasize this, in that day were covert. And they approached in darkness, in strategy, and, and manipulations, and multiplicity of devices used rather than um, a straight-on fight. So sort of like um, uh, the ambushes and traps and tricks that you can find in a military uh, exercise. So Paul is warning them against such, and the warnings are applicable uh, to believers today. I think so. Not again, and you guys may not agree with me, but I'm going to try to lay this out, uh, but not again against the devil. I think our own self-deception is a constant battle that we have to face. Our own desires to trick ourselves, deceive ourselves, do what we want, let our flesh reign. So I think the same tactics uh, put on the whole armor of God to protect yourself against being deceived, whether by yourself or the, or the devil. But that's, we'll talk about that in, in a minute. But at this point, Paul makes a super important point relative to the war being waged on the saints then. And I can't emphasize that enough. And the armament that he implores for them to equip themselves with. So he says, for... We wrestle not against flesh and blood. 
That is a straight out, straight out proclamation. Our fight, our wrestling is not against flesh and blood. That means other people, hard as that is. We think our warfare is with other people. I often think my warfare is with other people. It's not. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But, and now he tells us, against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now that's what the King James says. And so because of that, people read the passage, they assign it to themselves. We're wrestling against spiritual darkness in this world. Over the course of doing ministry in this state for coming up on 20 years, uh, I've had numerous times, numerous, I've had probably 10 times where I've been invited to join groups where we pray specific prayers to tie and bind Satan. I've had people invite me to go down to Temple Square and walk around it seven times and say a prayer that will renounce the powers of Satan to bind what's happening there and stop them. And, uh, and this is one of the passages that they use. We're not trying to fight against the flesh and blood that's coming in and out of that. We're trying to break down the strongholds that Satan has over it. Um, but one of the keys to understanding this verse better is to read it through the Greek. And the Greek says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, which is arche, and against powers, which is dunamis, against rulers of darkness of this age. Of this age. There were principalities and powers and rules of darkness of that age. And that's why cosmos isn't used there. And Paul is talking to them specifically. Because what was happening to them then was specific to that age and not to the world. And so that's why I don't believe it is applicable that way anymore. So the four there, four, we wrestle not, four starts the verse off as in relation to the verses before where he speaks of the wiles of the devil. And here, the four speaks to an exception. For, here's the exception, referencing the wiles of the devil. We don't wrestle against, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. For, we wrestle not. He spoke of the wiles of the devil, but he says, but for, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That's the exception line there that we see. For it's, for it's not, or for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The better Greek, the way the literal translations say is, there is not to us a wrestling with flesh and blood. That's kind of convoluted in our language, but that's how the Greek reads it. There is not to us a wrestling with flesh and blood. Right? So in all probability, Paul is making an allusion to what? The Olympic Games, when wrestling was part of those ancient games then, and he mentions them in 1 Corinthians 9.25, The Greek word specifically means to fight, combat, struggle with. And Paul makes it clear to the Christians then, and I believe to us now, if you want to accept it, I believe it's applicable, that we don't engage with warfare against flesh and blood. I have had to learn this lesson over and over and over in my life. It's finally sort of settling in. And I'm starting to understand that when things happen, even like with my wife and stuff, I am not fighting with her. I am wrestling against other, other philosophies, principalities, darkness, not in her necessarily, maybe within myself, but it's not against the person. The person's operating off things and I am not fighting them. I am wrestling spiritually against what's inside of them. 
And so I try to constantly fail, but I'm trying to step in to not wrestling with the flesh and blood because Satan loves that. I mean, that's his game. Let's wrestle against each other. He can just sit back and laugh, right? If we could only embrace it from the heart. So in reality, you know, people aren't our enemy. That's really easy to say. But it's like if we could step back and look at who our enemy is, if we were in the Second World War and we were facing, uh, you know, a German or a Russian, not a Russian, a German, Russians were our allies, you would see a person and they really aren't your enemy. They are filled with a philosophy that's uh, an enemy to yours and you're warring over that and you're killing each other over it. But in another place in time, that actual person, that's not your enemy. That, that, that's somebody who is a creation of God that you would probably get along with and, you know, be able to uh, hang out with whatever it is. So people, when we have trouble with them, they have been influenced by philosophies and difficulties and, and attitudes that cause us to not like them. It could be selfishness. Why are they selfish? Because of this or this or this or this. So it's not a war against individuals. And Paul makes it clear. If you want to be free, step from the war against flesh and blood. When you have someone who is your perceived enemy, you pray for them. He's going to talk about that. You have faith. He's going to talk about that. You do all these different things toward them and not have that confrontation, which I was sort of raised on. So this is understood by looking at the life of Jesus. You got to look at him and how he dealt with people. Now, he always dealt in love. But remember, he dealt with people. Um, they weren't the enemy. He was always trying to get to that taproot of what they operated by. Right? So he would tell the Pharisees, your father is the devil. That sound like, sounds like he's fighting against them. He's not. He's talking about what was in them. To Herod, not to Herod, was it Herod? To Herod, he said nothing at all to Herod. And he could have said anything. He could have said, let me tell you something, Herod, after this life, you're going to go to a place called the Lake of Fire. He didn't even war, war against them. And, and, and Peter talks about, and so does Jude, about how the angels wouldn't even speak against Satan in a war over Moses' body, which might be apocryphal. But that's something he says, the angels said, the Lord be your judge. Right? So we want to engage. And I get it, because believe me, if anyone on this earth gets it, I get it. But the, the scripture is teaching, Jesus taught, you can engage on the principles, but you don't engage on the person. So he, also, he often recognized devils in people, and he would heal them of those devils. His warfare was always resisting and defending himself against powers and spiritual means and not the physical and flesh and blood. Anytime someone attacks you verbally, perhaps even physically, they're disturbed inside. They have the issue inside. And uh, if you can rise above and you can operate by the spirit and realize they have the thing inside them that's messed up, you can tone it down on your response and deal with them. And often, like Proverbs says, a soft answer turns away wrath. So when someone's coming at you and you can turn away wrath with a soft answer, you know, that's the way God would have us do it. So we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against, and he gives us the first word, principalities. And you guys know this, I think, by now. That word is arche. And it's where we get anarchy uh, without any uh, uh, law or governance over you. 
uh, meaning the primary thing, arche, the primary thing, uh, architecture, the primary forms, archetype, the primary man. Howard Rourke is the archetype of strong figures in Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead, archetypal things. So he says, we wrestle not against, but against arches, against, and he's speaking of demons and devils, probably Satan specifically, because he is the arche, the primary form of, of the evil being represented. And the leading captains of demonic angels over the ranks of lesser angels who have lost their primary estate, uh, as we say. In that day, the wrestling match Christians engaged in here is with such, those things. And the question becomes, how or what does that wrestling match look like? They don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Be submissive, quiet, just, just go on. But how do you wrestle? Remember, he's talked about you obey your master. You, oh, masters, you do this. Children, obey your parents. Husbands, love your wives. Uh, wives, submit to your uh, husbands. And then everybody else, submit to each other. And now he's talking about what do you do with people who are enemies? And he's telling us how to handle that. And he's saying, you don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You're warring against something different, right? So uh, Arches is the first thing. We don't wrangle. There's a sheep in here. That We don't wrangle with flesh and blood. We uh, wrangle against principalities. Then he adds powers and presumably meaning the powers of, of those principalities that were present in that age. Remember that those powers were present in that age. And we're going to talk about this and I think it will be fascinating to you. And then he says, and against the rulers of darkness of this age, there were spiritual rulers of darkness of that age. We don't, uh, we wrestle against them. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So we know they weren't flesh and blood rulers of darkness in that age. They were other rulers of darkness of that age that Paul is telling them to wrestle against. That word translated rulers is epic in the Greek. I love it. It's Cosmoc Rator. When you look at it, it looks like a name of a villain against Superman. Cosmoc Rator. It's, it's such a beautiful word. Cosmos meaning the, wor uh, the world and Krator meaning something that seizes. Cosmos Caesar. Uh, uh, not Caesar as in the leader, but a Caesar of the world, Cosmocrator, okay? That's who he says we re they wrestled against, okay? The one who seized the world, all right? And, but he says we wrestle against the rulers of darkness of this age. We rule, we, we wrestle against the Cosmocrator of this age, so important to understand what he's saying there. Somebody in that age sees the world, is what he's saying. That's what cosmic radar means. Something in that age sees the world, and in that age they were under that being's power. That's who you wrestle against. Now, darkness, he says the darkness, is always a symbol in Scripture of, um, it can be of sin, but it really is of ignorance and bondage. Ignorance and bondage. So the darkness, the cosmic crater, when he seized the world, 
he put the world into darkness and he blinded the eyes of people and he put people in bondage. That's what that's what that evil, sinister, Superman-like character, the Cosmoc Crater, did when he seized the world. He blinded the world and put them in power. So it's he is a form of a misery maker, a woe maker, a, a being that does not bring good things to human beings. So the world Caesar, of course, is Satan. And I think this is a direct reference to him. It doesn't say Satan. He says he's Cosmoc Ratter. But interestingly, the word arche, translated principalities, seems to mean, uh, speak in the plural, that there are a number of arches, a number of them, and one Cosmoc Ratter. So something to think about in your studies. Since the earth, due to the fall, became dark, wretched, ignorant, sinful. Everybody who died went to a place that was separated from God. Everybody. Cosmoc Ratter, he caused that. He was the one who seized the world and put people in darkness. And that Sheol or hell place is described as dark. Why would it be described as dark in spiritual language? Because it's separate from God. That, that, that covered place, remember it's covered, it, in, in both prison and paradise, covered, separate from God. Cosmoc Ratter obtained that by seizing the world by, through the fall. And so we have this description of them being in darkness, and he had the power over a five-letter word, death. He got the power of death. I said that last week. So... Paul tells the Christians, them, that the armor will keep them from the dark forces that they're wrestling against and their influences. And he says, these are the things that you will arm yourself with, faith, righteousness, prepared with the gospel of peace. If you have the gospel of peace, you're not engaging with flesh and blood and cosmic radar can't get into your life. Prepared with the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the spirit through the word of God, which is the word of God, prayer, perseverance, and supplication. These are the, that's the full armor Paul tells them to put on to be able to, to, to war against and wrestle with these powers and principalities that are, that are, that have taken over the age. Okay. That's what you need. Got all that? So the question then is, I have to do this because it's contextual. Does this reign with its rulers continue to maintain power in this world? Or was it broken and overcome by Christ, his victory, his return over death? Now, the standard answer, the natural assumption is Cosmoc Ratter, Satan, his angels still reign. And it makes great sense, very easy to make when we look around at this world. It is insane, right? And so I personally want there to be a being who's still causing all of it. I really do. Because that makes it so easy 
for us to read these passages and war against that with faith and, and, and with righteousness and putting on the whole armor of God and everything else and keep us in this battlefield that Paul was talking to those people in that age that they were in. You're in this battlefield and he's telling them then. And most of us read and we say, we're still in it. We're still in it. But I have to believe, and I could be wrong, that that's a form of bondage for us to still be in this battlefield for this many years and every single generation God has left us for 2,000 years to be in this warfare, to be in this battlefield that that small bride was in and that we have to really put that armor of faith on because we are really subject to slipping back. I have to believe that Jesus did more for us when he was here than that. So I believe there is a wrestling match that goes on with Christians today. No question. It's with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's with our will. It's with the darkness that pervades the universe where God is not. Certainly all that exists. But I can't for the life of me, and I'm tr- I've tried, embrace relative, relative to what Scripture says. Uh, and I covered this in Meet a few weeks ago. The information here is, is pertinent to us like it was to them in that day. And I want to quickly cover quickly for me, uh, why? And I hope you'll really consider this and challenge it, okay? Remember Satan. He was a created being. Created right. Beautiful. Because everything God creates is right and beautiful. But of his own free will, fell. That, he fell by something. Whether it was external things, pushing on him or internal love of self and pride, whatever it was, it led that angelic being into rebellion against God. Uh, and, and that he somehow retained power when God kicked him out of heaven. He had power. Elevated in a position and he derived power from some source, whether it was dark or what, I have no idea, And he reigned over this earth through death. He reigned over it. Most people believe that he got the power, the ability to seize the world when he caused Adam and Eve, got Adam and Eve to fall. When he got Eve to fall. That's what most people believe. That's when he got, as we've made up this word, the title deed to the earth. He got it. And he put it in his pocket And he reigned over everybody through death. When you died, you went to Sheol, the covered place. Abraham or the sons of Uzzah, you went to the covered place. And Satan had the realm. He was the one who seized it. Got it? I wonder in the presence of the law of Moses, which Paul says is death, if Satan specifically was able to accuse humankind and play a role in his relationship with God because he was, the, the uh, nation of Israel had the law and he was able to then, in front of the law, accuse them. So where he had reign over death, 
he also was able to accuse people by virtue of the written law. And when the children of Israel broke it, God apparently from Job allowed Satan to come into his presence and to do some talking. Hey, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing really well down here. And God says in Job, well, have you considered my servant Job? Yeah, Job's just obedient to you because you like him and bless him. All right, let's see. So this was the age where that was all going on, right? These deals between God and Satan who had the title deed. And for some reason, God couldn't say, I'm taking the title deed from you. I'm omnipotent. You're not. I get it. For some reason, God doesn't do that. He lets him keep it. And he reigns, as a, with a phrase that we're well familiar with, with blood and horror on this earth, <laughs> right? So... What we do know is that as a result of the first Adam choosing to rebel against God and for listening to the voice of Satan, all human beings were born spiritually dead. That's why Jesus said you must be born again. So Satan had the win right there. That's why when you died, you would go to Sheol because you were spiritually dead. There was no spirit living in anybody, not even Abraham. It rested on them, but then left. So you must be born again, Jesus comes teaching. In order to even see the kingdom of God, this has to happen. And this went on and on and on until, some people say it's still going on and on. I disagree with that. Until Christ came. So what did Jesus, when I say came, I mean until Christ was born. That's what I mean there. So what did Jesus actually do when he entered into this world and this realm and into his ministry and then to death and resurrection and ascension? Well, just remember, he had a time when his time would come. Remember, he was doing things with his uh, stepfather. He was building cabinets and, and all kinds of stuff. But he had no power until his time had come, right? And when his time came, he stepped forward and John the Baptist... He washes and anoints him. Why does he do that? Because that's what they did in the temples for their priests. They washed and anointed them. And John does this through water baptism of the king before he enters in to his ministry as king. And the first thing that happens to him when he enters into the ministry is Satan comes and he says, and he goes to the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. And Satan, who has the title deed to the earth, as we say, steps in and says, all right, here you are. Let me tell you what I'll do. And he says, I'll give you this. I'll give you that. I'll give you this. I'm the title deed holder. You do this. You worship me. You do these other things and I'll give them to you. Right. And Jesus, whom Paul calls the second Adam. Remember, we have the first one who failed. Jesus overcomes all those temptations. And he responds to them by the written word. It is written, it is written, it is written. And Jesus, guess what Jesus does in that wilderness experience? He beats Satan at what Satan did with Adam. Satan had that victory. Same thing, I'm going to tempt Jesus. Jesus beat Satan. And so from that point forward, we know prior he never did any miracles. From that point forward, prior he never cast out any devils. But from that point forward, everything obeyed his word, almost. And his apostles were able to do things in his name and have great power. But it wasn't complete 
Satan was still on earth because he comes back to Jesus in the Garden of, in the Garden of Gethsemane. So during this time when Jesus is on earth, people are possessed with devils. Satan was able to uh, possess them. Jesus comes along and says, out, out they go. They know that someone new has come to, there's a new sheriff in town and he's come in and he beat Satan in the wilderness experience. He overcame that. And so he was given Jesus a sort of power that was overcoming all of Satan's stuff, disease, death, um, possession. Jesus is doing it. But Satan um, still retained power, some power in that time, because Jesus hadn't died and overcome death through his resurrection. So Satan still had some power. That's why Jesus' disciples came to him and said, we tried to use your name to get rid of these, to get rid of this. And Jesus said, it takes fasting. Oh, you have little faith. It takes fasting and prayer for this type of thing to come out. Because just the, the flat out victory wasn't going to be had yet. Listen, even before going to the cross, Jesus speaks of the victory that has been had over Satan. And he's speaking about what had happened, and in the Greek, what will happen. In John 12, 31, Jesus says to his disciples, now is the judgment of this cosmos. And he means cosmos there. Now shall the prince of the world be cast out. Now shall the prince of the world be cast out. It's not cast out like you think. I'll explain it. Stay with me because I'm, I'm giving you my best stuff. The next few days, future passive form in the Greek. The judgment of this world is coming. That's what it meant. In the next few days, the, the judgment of this world is coming. And then will the prince of this world, the uh, cosmos crater, the prince of this world, be cast out. Jesus is speaking of his death and resurrection when Satan would be cast out. Because two chapters later, after saying this, he says before heading to the cross, hereafter, I'm not going to talk much with you, to his apostles, for the prince of this world is coming. So we know he hasn't been cast out yet. But because Jesus says, the prince of this world's coming, I'm not going to be talking much with you. And he has nothing in me. No one else could say that at that time. He had something in everyone, even Peter, all of them. He had something still in them. But Jesus says, he's got nothing in me. I beat, him in the, I beat him in the wilderness. He's coming, but he has nothing in me. Meaning he might try to get me, but he's not gonna. When will he try to get him next? Why is he coming? Because he's coming to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's coming to tempt Jesus to not do the final thing that will give Jesus, boom, the throwdown on his head to crush him, as it says in Genesis that he will crush Satan's head. That's what he was coming to do, okay? Satan bruised his heel, but he crushed. That's the best Hebrew for that passage. He will crush his head. Well, Satan didn't want his head crushed. So he comes to the garden uh, of Gethsemane and he tempts Jesus. And Jesus is under it now. I mean, he's sweating blood, apparently, or large drops of sweat that were like blood. He is, and he even says to his father, hey, any other way, I don't want to do this. This breaks my heart for our Lord and Savior. This 
this overwhelms me with gratitude. I would have given in four weeks earlier. He is there facing something we can't comprehend. And he says, Father, it's your will. Don't let this happen. But nevertheless, your will be done. Satan couldn't beat him in the garden either, a garden of Gethsemane. The second attempt to retain control. In chapter 16 of John, Jesus says that Satan, when the Holy Spirit will come to earth, stay with me, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes to earth, meaning in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes to earth, the Holy Spirit will do three things. This is what it says. When he has come, the Holy Spirit, he will, one, reprove the world of righteousness, two, and of righteousness, reprove the world of righteousness, excuse me, reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's what Jesus says the Holy Spirit is going to do. He's going to reprove the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. And if you stop there, we'd all go, what does that mean? But instead, he explains what he means. He says, of sin, because they, the Jews, didn't believe on me. So the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to convict those Jews because they didn't believe on him of sin. You put him to death. The Holy Spirit will come and he will convict you of sin because you guys put him to death. Second one, of righteousness, Jesus says, because I go to my Father and you'll see me no more. How does the Holy Spirit cause people to say Jesus was righteous? Because he ascended to his Father and he's gone. So the Holy Spirit will tell them, You'll, you know he was good. You know he was righteous. He went to the Father as witnessed by 500 people. Don't I tell you this through the Spirit in your heart? I realize this. Convert before the end, before the end comes. And then the final one, and of judgment. The Holy Spirit will come of judgment. The last one, and Jesus says, because the prince of this world is judged. Is judged. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would, would, uh, will, will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, and he tells us how. At Pentecost is when he says, when the Holy Spirit comes, right? The last verse when he says, um, okay, the last verse which tells us plainly that when the Holy Spirit of God comes to the earth, he will reprove, that means prove, the world sinful. Reprove means prove. Uh, of sin by showing that the Jews put Jesus to death and, and would prove righteousness, right? Again, how? Because Jesus would ascend to the Father and prove that he was righteous. And the judgment, because the prince of this cosmos then and there will be judged. That phrase is written in the perfect passive indicative. And what that means is that's a statement of this will be true. Hadn't happened yet. This will be true. When will it be true? When the Holy Spirit comes. When does the Holy Spirit come? Acts chapter 2. That's when Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will. So he wasn't talking in the perfect sense. He's talking in the perfect passive indicative. I'm indicating when it will happen. When will it happen? In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes. That's when the world will be judged by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So in that day, Satan would be judged. That is what Jesus says 
and what he also alludes to in chapter 11 of Luke, which we're covering in our afternoons. Listen carefully to what it says there. Jesus teaches to them, when a strong man armed, when a strong man armed keeps his palace, his goods are at peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he takes from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divides his spoils. You know why Jesus says that? Because he just casted a devil out of a person. And the, and the Jews said, you did this by the power of Satan. And they went back and forth with him. He goes, let me tell you something. And he says, when a strong man has his house all armed, the, the, the goods are uh, safe. When Satan had uh, reign over this realm, those possessed of him and in Sheol, they were safe. But then he says, but when a stronger than he comes, talking about himself, and overcomes him, that one who's stronger will take all his uh, armor uh, that he trusted in and divide his spoils. He'll remove those that Satan had power over and divide his whole kingdom up. That's what Jesus tells them then as to what was going on. Tying all this together, we learn the following. Jesus had victory over Satan's temptations of him as the second Adam in the wilderness. Jesus said that Satan, the prince of this world, was going to be cast out and judged. He said that judgment would happen when the Holy Spirit fell or came, that which happened in Acts chapter 2. And he uses a parable of a stronger one coming and dividing his kingdom up and sending the spoils out to where he wishes. So I concur that this binding occurred once Satan was judged. Once Satan was judged, the binding of Satan occurred. Stay with me. We're there. I know it's milk, but we're here talking about principalities of darkness. Do we read it today and say yes? Stay with me. This is important. The binding occurred, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit would come, which was the day of Pentecost. And we know from Revelation that that binding of Satan would be for 1,000 years, we call it. The millennium. For 1,000 years, we say. And so we, being human, we look at 1,000 years and we say, that's 1,000 years. We're still waiting for that to happen in the future. When everything for 1,000 years will be hunky-dory here on earth. 1,000 is a Jewish-Hebrew way of saying, as much as it is, as all of it, whatever. It's not 1,000. So everyone who thinks that we're going to go into this period of 1,000 years because they're literalists when they read that, do not understand the Hebrew. Because the Hebrews, when they said 1,000, they meant all of it. Satan will be bound for all of the time. He will be bound is what they would say. Okay? We know that, for instance, you can read in Psalm 50.10 where it says, For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a 1,000 hills. That's God talking. Does God only have the cattle on a thousand hills? Or does he have the cattle on all the hills being talked about? He has the cattle on all the hills. Thousand is representative of all the time necessary. All the cattle, all the hills. That's a Hebraism. So it was never meant to be, the, the Greeks gave us the millennia word. It was never meant to be a strict 1,000 period of time that he would be bound. He would be bound for the whole time necessary. All right? So 1,000 in Hebrew writing is a representational number. It's not a literal one. And I suggest that at the cross and resurrection, Jesus 
had his second victory over Satan. That was the second one. Boom. He couldn't get him to, to turn from it in Gethsemane. He, and, and so Jesus goes to the cross, and then he goes to hell, as First Peter says. He teaches those who were in the spirit prison uh, during the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And then after three days, he comes up victorious. And then 50 days later, the day at Pentecost, we have the Holy Spirit given. And Satan is judged on that day. And that begins the binding of him for as long as the time is necessary. Why do I say that the timing of that happened then? This is why there was peace. Uh, there was peace among the Christians for the very first part of the Christian church. They didn't have any sort of resistance to stop the church from growing, from it being distributed out after uh, Pentecost. The, the, the church went out all over the place because Satan was not there stopping it. He was bound and he had peace. And that was for a period of time. And it is also why we read passages in the New Testament from Paul, who when writing to them then about Christ says, and having, this is in the perfect present, having spoiled principalities and powers, he, Jesus, made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. He triumphed over them. Then, Jesus, he's been resurrected, he's ascended. Paul writes to the believers then, he has done it. That's in Colossians 2.15. That's why Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1.10. But now is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death. Satan, the, the Caesar, had death. He abolished death, not physical death. His kingdom's not of this world. He abolished spiritual death for people going into that covered place. He abolished it. It's gone. And brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, is what Paul says. You know what else he says about what Jesus did when he was on this earth? Hebrew, oh, the writer of Hebrews says this. For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, talking about Jesus, also himself likewise took part of the same, became human, that through death he might destroy, that's crush, him that had the power over death, that is the devil. That through his resurrection, his death, death and resurrection, he would destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. That says it in Hebrews. These are all present tense passages, folks, in that day. And then speaking to the ascended Christ, Peter says, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers are made subject to him. Angels, authorities and powers. These are the same words that are being used here in Ephesians chapter six, where he says, but you war against the dark principalities and powers. These are the same words. They're made subject to him. All right. So, and I got to wrap this up. Was Satan totally and forever abolished after the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit when he was judged and then bound? You know the answer to this. No, no, no. For some tricky reason, I don't get it. He was going to get out for a little period of time. He got to get out to them then. Jews who accepted Christ. Under the law came out, and some Gentiles. He was going to be bound so the church could spread, but then he was going to be loosed. 
Revelation helps lay this out. It says in Revelation 20:30, don't be afraid of Revelation. It was written to them then. You can understand it clearly if you just look at it. Written to the seven actual churches on earth at that time. John was supposed to take this revelation to them. And that <coughs> after Jesus said, had these two initial victories, first in the wilderness, then in Gethsemane, then the Holy Spirit comes and Satan is judged. He's bound. He's been judged and bound for the thousand years, which is all the time, whatever it was going to be. It says in Revelation 20, verse 1, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, which laid hold of the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. There's that line. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him that he should deceive the tribes. That's the best uh, interpretation of that. What tribes? The 12 tribes. He should deceive the tribes no more until the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And then we read a description of what things like during that period uh, were going to happen. And John says about them in the next verse, blessed, he says it to them, the seven churches who are believers in that age, blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection on such the second death has no power. See, Satan was trying to get the second death going with anybody he could grab after he's loose for this short period. He wanted to grab them for second death, over which the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. This is a description of the believers in that nascent apostolic church who were righteous and faithful and part of the first resurrection. We read about all of the things happening in secular history too. This is covered then in Revelation, which says 27. And when the thousand years are expired, when the full amount of time, please try to get that in your head. Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Again, he said earlier, for a little season. And shall go out to deceive the ethnicities or tribes. I say tribes, which are in the four quarters of the land, not the world that are here in the four corners of this land, Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle, and number of whom is as the sands of the sea. That's a Hebraism. So he went and he gathered all that he could to bring warfare against uh, the bride. Okay? He's trying to get people. He knows his time is short. How do we know that? It says, And they went up in the breadth and the compass of the camp of the saints about, and they went to the beloved city, which is Jerusalem, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Revelation chapter 12, 12 has this, uh, says this to believers about Satan in that day. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down upon you having great wrath because he knows that he has but a short time. So what we see then, just really, I'm going to wrap it up. Holy Spirit comes, Satan's judged. He's bound with a chain in that place, the bottomless pit. And then as the church grows and, and then we start to get closer and closer to the wrapping up, Satan's loose. And historians tell you, I think it was about 63 AD, all living hell broke loose upon that church. 
upon all of the churches in Asia Minor, upon the Jerusalem, upon the uh, Jews who had converted, stuff you cannot believe the secular writers describe because Satan was gathering up all of Rome to come in and destroy that, uh, that city and the Christians along with it. So uh, Revelation 20.10 then reads, in connection with Jesus returning to Jerusalem as promised, with the final ultimate victory over all things, rescuing his faithful bride, who were those believers then who were reading these epistles in that day, and, uh, and the devil that deceived them, this is the final thing, when Jesus returns to them to save them, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. That was the destination of Satan, the accuser, who once had the title deed to this world and seized it. Jesus had, as Paul says, the victory over him. And when he returned for his own, that was the fate of the person we still are talking about today and blaming for our own evil deeds and and, and pointing at and praying against and all these other things as if He's still in operation. Then we finally read, following all those who were part of that day and age, and I saw, remember this is all for them of that day and age, and I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open, and another book was open, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things that were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged according, every man according to his works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. That's why I do not believe that the covered place that Satan once had reign over still exists because that passage says it was cast into the lake of fire. What else was? Death. Death and hell. That's why I do not believe people who die today go to that dark place anymore. I do not believe that they suffer a second death anymore. It was all taken care of then by the victory of Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's how scripture, in my opinion, describes it. That was the ultimate end of that day and age. That was it. And all the players in it, which Jesus came to have victory over. And so uh, what does it look like today? Verse chapter 21, 1. And I saw a new heaven. A new heaven. And a new earth, which is spiritual where God reigns over the hearts of individuals. That's what, the, that's what was instituted once all of that was accomplished that I just read. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. That first was under the law. That first was what was established when Satan seized it. That's all that first heaven and first earth. They were passed away, former and material. And then he says, and there is no more sea. That means there's no more brazen sea in front of the temple. There is no more temple. There's no more sea. That's what he meant. Not there's no more seas. People will ask, well, are there still seas? Yeah, well, we're not there yet. You got to look at what a Jew was saying and what John was saying when he's, uh, he's seeing these things. And there's no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city. Where was it? In Israel? And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. 
as prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is spiritual, heavenly city. That's where he reigns from. That's what the church is. That's what you're part of. The new Jerusalem, that old place you go visit on your vacations, that's dust and brick and mortar, and it was done for 2,000 years ago. I'm not anti-Semitic. I get that thrown at me too. You're anti-Semitic. I'm not at all anti-Semitic. They're just like you and me, just like everybody else. But there's no Jerusalem there. The new Jerusalem John saw coming down out of heaven, ready like a bride. And John says, and I heard a great voice out of heaven seven saying, listen to what God says. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Behold, the tabernacle of God, that's the temple, is with men. And he will dwell with them. He's living in us, you guys. We're not waiting for some new one. He's living in you if you're a believer. It dwells with men. And they will be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. That's a direct quote from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, where God says, in that day, I will write my laws upon their hearts and upon their minds and they will be my people and I will be their God. And no man will say, know the Lord, know the Lord, for all will know me. Do you see what Jesus has done through his life, death and resurrection, ascension, return? He has had the victory over all of it. We don't preach it anymore. We're still in the chains and bondage of religion because we just can't believe it's such a glorious gift that we have received from what God gave us. So we just keep playing this game out when scripture clearly says that we, the temple of God came down and he writes it on our hearts and on our minds. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. People say, oh, that hasn't happened. I still cry. It's all spiritual. You got to remember that. In terms of your hope for the future, has God, uh, have you stopped crying? Have you stopped worrying about going to hell or this? If you understand that he's written on your heart, yes, you have. He's wiped away those tears. It's always spiritual now. And there should be no more death, no more spiritual death. It's done. The lake of fire, which was created for Satan and his angels, which is called the second death, that is spiritual death, is over. There will be no more death, no sorrow, no crying, neither shall be there any more pain. The law has been removed. The former things are passed away. Peter, when he was on the earth, said everything is about to end. Did you know that? He said everything is ending. Right here in John, we, uh, we have God saying the former things are passed away. And he sat upon the throne and said, behold, I make all things new through Christ Jesus. You ever heard it said, you know, you're a new creature in Christ. All things are new. That's what he's talking about. When individuals now come to him by faith, you become new. You become a brand new creature, part of that heavenly kingdom, which is spiritual. And he said unto me, right for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. He that overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. That's another reference to Jeremiah where God is telling us human beings like you and I can be sons and daughters of God by and through what Jesus has done for us. And then John speaks of those who had been warned and warned and warned of what was coming but to the fearful, to the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, he says, they shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. They'll have their part of the second death, 
but they will not be there as John describes Satan and his angels and the prophet and the false beast forever and ever. He just says they'll have their part and that means they will have a portion of it given to them. Those people who were unfaithful and but not this eternal punishment bit. All right. And this is the write-up of everything that was to happen, the wrapping up of that former age, which includes the destiny of Satan, the accuser of the brethren, hell, Sheol, the covered place, by and through, the complete victory of our Lord and Savior, where people today are celebrating his birth. They're celebrating his birth. It's great. But I celebrate the whole package. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection his ascension, his return, and him having victory over all things, everything, finally, once and for all, that every day instead of one day of the week, and one day of the year. So uh, all of that was warned by the prophets. I got to finish up. I know I've been saying that. One more thing. Speaking of his coming, Jesus coming, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I say it all the time because it's got to sink in. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23, read with me. Speaking of the resurrection, he says, But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, that's the first one resurrected. Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. Okay? Then comes the end, is what he says. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Has Jesus done that? He's done it. In this physical world, we're not talking about it. everything with him is spiritual. The physical world, is, you're going to die. In fact, it's a gift. But in, in, in the spiritual world, no, he's had that complete victory. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject to him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. That's the age we're living in. We've been living it in it forever. I mean, for 2,000 years. And we rejoice over that. And from this, we know that all death, the spiritual death in Christ relative to our eternality and life in him is gone. And both spiritual death and the second death, which is the lake of fire, done. That God is now all in all. He is in you. And in this all in all, we have the chronological beginning and end of all the stuff I've just talked about. Now, finally, people say, well, then how is there so much evil in the world? I got to cover it. And there's so much evil in the world because we are humans created with free will and our will wants to do what our will wants. How can we say that? Because when Adam and Eve were in the garden, there was no fall yet. Adam and Eve were in the garden. They hadn't fallen. And Eve chose before she had fallen to obey her own will. She chose to do her own will before she had fallen. She was tempted, but she fell, and then she was subject to Satan. So our will as human beings will do all sorts of terrible things. In fact, listen to what James says, the last verse. 
Let no person say when he or she is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any person. But every person is tempted when he is drawn away of his own or her own lust and enticed. James doesn't even include Satan in that mix. He doesn't even say, and Satan, uh, he says, you are drawn away of your own. And God lets us have our free will and choices. And so that's how I celebrate the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, return, and victory of Jesus. And that's my Christmas message. Questions or comments? All right. Thank you guys for bearing with that. Hey, it's Trish. So really then, why are we, why is anybody born 71 AD and after? Why are we here? Why was, why was Adam and Eve in the garden in the first place? Well, all this ended. It ended. It's like this great story. Yeah, this is what happened. And it ended. The end. All that great story ended, but it wasn't great. There was, there was horrible well, things happening. Th- they went to heaven, the bride those, and all Those that. people of the bride went to heaven. But why the body continues. We, why? Because why would God create Adam and Eve in the first place? Remember, Jesus is the second Adam. He restored the Edenic state to the spiritual lives of those who are his. So you have God in you in this life. God is a creator. He gives life. But now you have him in you just like Adam and Eve did and you're walking with him through this life. You're learning to love. You're sharing the message for others. This place is gonna continue to go on and God is gonna continue to dwell with people who want him. That's why. That's why he created Adam and Eve in the first place, to dwell with them. You could ask the same question back to the Garden of Eden. Why? Why? And then, then you could, and someone would say, well, we have the fall. And then we, ha- and then you say, okay, Jesus, the second Adam comes. And then we ask the same question again. Why? Do we still have to choose though? Of course. So that is why Every we day. still come. Every here. day you're choosing. But is that the purpose? Because I tell you, I'm treading water. I'm not going forward at who do all. You, Trish, who do you love? Well, I love Jesus. Okay. Then you, by your choices, will choose Jesus. And that's why I'm here. Because that's what Adam and Eve, who do you love more? Okay. Who do you love more, me or anything else? So we still have to make a choice. We are doing what Adam and Eve did back in the garden every minute of our Christian life on this earth. Why? I don't know why God does that. But the fact is we are back in that state spiritually because Jesus made it clear in our hearts and we daily prove who we love, ourselves or God. Okay. Yeah. So then my second <laughs> question is, yeah. that being the case. And it's a great question. Thank you. That being the case, where is this new Jerusalem now? It's and in heaven. In heaven. Yeah. But not down here. It is down too, and that's the paradox of it. We are citizens of it here as we live in, in his kingdom by the spirit. When we die, we actually enter it spiritually, whatever it is, resurrected physically. I don't know how it So works. it is in another place. It is another place, but we are, it's just like, are you a U.S. citizen when you go to Germany? You're still a U.S. citizen, but your your country is here. You're in Germany. We're down here, but we are citizens of that. That's why the picture of Abraham not having a place to go, but knowing he had a kingdom somewhere else. 
and he walked in faith. That's a picture for you and I. We are walking knowing our citizenship is not of this world, but there. We have a different king, not the ones here. I think if, if at the end of Revelations it said reprise back to Adam and Eve, I think we would help a little bit easy? more to know. I think it would be Come easier on. if God would stick his head out of the clouds just and just tell us. Just give us something. Let us know where to go. But that's part of the loving or not. You know, do you want to search, search for him, seek him, love him? You're not on the edge. You're in him. Walk with him. That's it. Every day, making the choice. Mallory? I don't know what it's doing. I'm sorry. It's our guy next door, Thank I think. Oh, okay. um, great, great message today. I, I was just wondering, while you guys were talking, did... Did uh, Adam and Eve, could they have made that choice without Satan tempting her? Would they have decided, you know what, we're not supposed to eat that tree. Wouldn't that just be really, you know, it's just like. Probably not. Don't you don't think. think they, you think they would just be so obedient to God. I think they needed that tempt. That's why he. You don't think they would have thought, I wonder if how good that fruit would taste. That's where I think they were innocent. I don't know if they had that cognitive ability to wonder. Yeah. And, but I could be wrong. I, I don't know. Pure conjecture. Great okay. question. Y- great message. A lot of content there, but I just, you kind of lost me a little bit. And I, I was trying to pay attention, but then I got, you know, Sleepy. your mind, your mind starts to wander a little bit about some of these points. Yeah. But can you just, again, really quickly recap the millennium part, where that fits? That was, where does that fit again? It's good time. because it's good to recap because it's so difficult for people. Millennium is a Greek word, but the Jews meant a thousand to just represent. And the way it worked then is that whatever period of time that that, that was, we call it millennium, but whatever period of time it was began after the Holy Spirit came in, 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 because Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, Satan will be judged. So I believe, I believe that that's when he was bound. That's the beginning of the millennium. Why do I believe that? At Pentecost. At Pentecost. Because from that point forward at Pentecost, for a number of decades, the church experienced relative peace. Okay? They were tried by people because we have our own will and our attitudes. and But Satan wasn't part of that. And then around 60 AD, 65, 63, he was loosed for that short period. And that's when historically we read the hell that was rained down upon them. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Thanks. Thanks. Buzz McGee has a question. <laughs> I think we're all going to get that haircut. <laughs> How you guys doing? Um, I was going to say with this, um, I'm trying to summarize here. Uh, you know, I kind of, I do the best I can to pay attention. Ooh, I'm getting too close. You hear that? You're good, Richard. Okay. What's the kind of gist of what you're saying? Because you're talking about how. Uh, what gets me really interested? As much as I still am a traditionalist Christian and the Methodist. Baptist, even Mormon sense, where I believe we're still waiting for a second coming. Because the weird thing is, we're still in a fall of, we're still in a fallen world. Heaven is not on earth. Uh, I'm still anticipating psychologically, and I feel it's more comfortable thinking that your belief that Christ already came down as much as you may have evidence that I haven't seen yet, and I will get around to it. That's why I got some spare time on my hand. 
to actually read some of the articles you have on eternal punishment and other things that kind of substantiate your claim in regards to believing that Christ has returned the second time. Because you're the only pastor in the world that I've ever met who ever subscribed to such theology. No, there's others. Oh, there is others. Well, at least ones that I have met. I mean, you're the one that I know of. We're the Methodists, the Baptists, even LDS. Uh, non-denominational, whether it's a name and claim it kind of thing and the prosperity gospel. Right. The all point, Jesus is coming back. And I think overall, right. it's to give the sense of hope and uh, feeling of restoration because psychologically, if you feel that things are going to get better, even if it's not, it has that placebo effect it does. on the mind. But to say Christ so return to a lot of people, I'm not being mean, uh, I hate to sound blunt, it's kind of offensive because like, well, what are we doing here? Why is it so imperfect? You know, but I like how you said overall, forgive me if I'm off top subject, I go on tangents. It's one thing that gives me hope, and it's really inspirational. It gives me the drive, whether it's the placebo effect or not, whatever it is. A lot of psychologists saying, well, you feel good because it's yeah. religion you like, and it's giving you hope, yada, 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 whatever. The kingdom of... I, I was thinking about last night from Charlie Chaplin. He says, the spirit of... Uh, uh, it's, uh, Mark Was it St. Mark's? The spirit... The kingdom of God is within, within you. you. And I've read these passages before, and you know, being a babe in Christ... I read through the Bible, didn't understand it, but over time, as uh, one gentleman said here, you learn more. I think it was uh, um, David over there. He's, you learn, you go back to the scriptures and get something different from it as yeah. you progress. Yeah. Uh, and that is one thing I like about it is that the spirit of God, the kingdom of God, not just the spirit, the kingdom is in you. And I like that because it gives, for me, somehow it gives me inspiration of saying I can live out my uh, grace, not earn my grace, yeah. not earn my salvation, for the kingdom of God is in you. Amen. And I love that about that. I don't mean to go on a rant or a tangent, but it's really cool how uh, if Christ already came, there is still hope. There's not. It's not, oh, we missed it. Oops, I guess we're not going to be raptured up. I guess I have to suffer. Hope. Yeah, There's exactly. Yeah, there is because you don't like, have to worry about. Um, will I be in church when the rapture comes? Did I <laughs> yeah, pay exactly. enough tithe so I'm worthy for the rapture? You know, there's more hope. You have the kingdom in you. You're walking with him in you. You share in love with people. It's better than the other way, and Look, God intended it to be that. That's very true. That's very true. It takes time, kind of time to understand that. Uh, I know it's simple to understand, but it's kind of hard to grasp, especially as he's such a stubborn. Uh, uh, indoctrinated yeah. person to overcome it. to realize oh, I was wrong. Oh, that's going to be hard to kind of accept. You know, but anyway, I don't mean to go too much. Uh, take right, too much of your time. Does anybody want to uh, do it? Thank you. Oh, yeah, thank, you, you, thank awesome. you. Thank you. That it. All right. Do we have a list, Mel? I don't think there's anything on it. Sorry. <sighs> that's part of your job. I know. <laughs> I was going to add a zero to your paycheck today. No. <laughs> make a full zero. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Lord, uh, we want your truth, not my uh, teachings and suggestions. It's not about me. It's uh, I, I struggle to find answers, and I look for them. I share, but Lord, your spirit has to teach us. And I pray that by your word and by your spirit, not to the traditions of men and not the teachings of a man, but just your your spirit will guide us to open our hearts and minds to see what is true. Because in that truth, we have freedom. We have liberty. That's why we want it. We want to be free from whatever it is that keeps us trapped. Because in that liberty, we can love. In that, in that freedom, we have the capacity to love each other and to love you like you tell us to. So be with us now. Help our families, wherever they are, that... Uh, that uh, they will have uh, this light come on as we interact with them, whoever they are, and uh, that they'll, 
they'll consider other ways instead of being blinded by their own prejudice or traditions. We pray for our families. This is the family time of year, and we just pray for everybody who is beguiled that we'll be able to uh, show the freedom and peace and love that comes with a true relationship by being members of that kingdom that is within us. We pray for those who aren't here and those who are struggling and those who are on the lists and and uh, we pray that you'll bless uh, all of us as we enter forth into this week, which is so hectic and busy in our world. And we pray that we'll have your peace that never ends. In Jesus' name, amen. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. 